0: Motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries, but it doesn't have to be this way. And as mothers, we're ready for a revolution. We love our kids, but we struggle with losing our identities, bearing the weight of motherhood without enough support, and striving to meet those impossible standards of what it means to be a good mother. It's time to openly discuss how motherhood is deeply affected by patriarchy, racism, and capitalism, so that we can break free of these systems. As mothers, we know our work is valuable, and has radical potential to birth a more equitable and inclusive future for ourselves and our children welcome to the rebel mothers podcast i'm your host Susie fishleader and together we'll explore the challenges of modern motherhood and reclaim mothering as an act of liberation hello and welcome to another special episode of rebel mothers where we do a deep dive into the life of a real rebel mother In honor of Christmas, I thought it'd be fun to center the most famous mother of all, Mary, the mother of Jesus, because as we all know, Jesus's birthday is also Mary's birthday. See what I did there? Today, we'll look at the symbol of Mary as a model of motherhood and what that means for modern mothers, first by looking at how she's revered both in Christianity and Islam. Then we'll discuss Mary as a human person, right? The mother, not the myth. What are the challenges and struggles Mary might have faced as the mother of Jesus, especially in the beginning as an unwed teenager with an unexpected pregnancy? I'll draw on some traditional sources, as well as some more modern feminist interpretations of Mary as a source of empowerment for women, and explore how Mary's story can intersect with other social justice issues, such as race, gender, and socioeconomic status. This was a really incredibly rich episode to research, and I'm so excited to share with you and then hear how you connect with various aspects of Mary's life and story. So let's get started. First, I wanna name my relationship to the Virgin Mary, which is almost non-existent. Uh, I was raised in Utah, not as a Mormon. I was the only person on my street not Mormon. So I was surrounded by Mormons or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So the Mormon religion really doesn't have much to do with Mary. They acknowledge that she is the mother of Jesus, but she's not a symbol that I saw in people's homes. I never really saw, you know, paintings of Mary um, or shrines dedicated to her. To my understanding, people of the LDS faith do not pray to Mary. So I didn't grow up with really any meaningful sense of the figure of Mary as a mother. Beyond, of course, you know, the images everybody sees at Christmas time, right? However, when I got my master's degree in women's spirituality, for several years, I was surrounded by people for whom Mary was a very important symbol of womanhood, motherhood, and feminine spirituality. And I wanna be clear that I respect and admire the symbol and person who is Mary, the mother of Jesus. This podcast is not an attempt to discredit any of the mythology surrounding Mary. It's also not gonna be a discussion of Mary worship or Mariology, which is the theology of Mary. I'm not really looking at her as a religious symbol. I am going to touch on a few religious beliefs surrounding Mary that do continue to affect the lives of women and mothers today. But in most of this episode, I just want to think of her as a person, as a mother, as a rebel mother. So regardless of your personal religious or spiritual beliefs, I think there is a lot to be learned from her story. You know, she's often held up and regarded as the model of motherhood. But what does that even mean? What was Mary's experience of motherhood like? What are the symbols that Mary, you know, portrays and the meanings that they carry for women and mothers today? So a quick personal story, you know, thinking about Mary as a symbol of motherhood. Uh, A few years ago, when I was working as an infant massage educator, I toured a birth center whose founders were devout Catholics, and in each birthing suite, there were images and statues of Jesus, often on the cross. And I remember being so perplexed, like why did this birthing center, this place of life, this space supporting and celebrating women in one of their most transformative moments as they give birth, why was the most prominent symbol a young man dying on a cross and not a symbol of his mother, who is still a profound and spiritual figure in the Catholic church in her own right? Why didn't they have pictures or statues celebrating motherhood with the most well-known and revered mother of all, who would have been a perfectly appropriate symbol for a Catholic birth center. In researching this podcast episode, I obviously went to the Bible, but I also went to the Quran, where Mary is known as Miriam, Bint Amran. And in fact, she's even mentioned more in the Quran than she is in the Gospels. And I think that's a good place to start. So let's explore first how Mary is represented in these two faiths to get a shared understanding of Mary's symbolism and what she represents to women and mothers. So Mary holds a profound meaning for both Christian and Islamic women, resonating with their spiritual devotion and everyday lived experiences. You know, for Christian mothers, Mary is highly regarded as a loving and devoted mother, providing comfort, guidance, and support to Jesus throughout his life, including during his ministry and crucifixion. Christians really often see her uh, as the embodiment of maternal love and compassion, and there are many denominations that believe that Mary can intercede with God on behalf of believers, so she's often prayed to directly. She's portrayed as a model of faith, humility, and obedience to God's will. And she has various feast days and devotions like the Feast of the Immaculate Conception and you know the Rosary that are dedicated to honoring her. Uh, there are churches and shrines and artworks worldwide that pay tribute to Mary's exceptional role in the Christian faith. In Islam, Maryam holds a uniquely holy status as the only woman to be named in the Quran. She has an entire chapter devoted to her, and she is considered to be one of the greatest women in history. She is recognized as a symbol of virtue, purity, and obedience to Allah. Maryam is presented as you know, an exemplary figure for uh, both men and women to emulate due to her unwavering faith, her strength, and her devoutness. And she really serves to inspire Muslims to lead a righteous life. Now, Mary is not seen as divine in her own right in either religion. Although in the Catholic Church, you know there are many devotions like prayer and pious acts and you know art, music devoted to her. Both religions have a shared belief in the miraculous conception of Jesus, uh, who is known as Isa in Islam. So let's talk a little bit about Mary's experience as a real-life mother. Now, obviously, there's a bit of suspended belief and imagination here since Mary gave birth over 2,000 years ago, and in that time, she's become a truly mythical figure. But we can start with stories that we're all familiar with, except let's try to take a look at them through Mary's eyes. So from Mary's perspective, her motherhood journey starts with a visitation by the angel Gabriel, who delivered the astonishing news that she, a young and devout Jewish girl, would conceive a child through the Holy Spirit. Mary was a little alarmed, but said, "'I am a servant of the Lord, "'so let it be according to his word.'" Of course, a young unwed girl at that time who is unexpectedly pregnant faced a lot of skepticism and shame, and even fear of being stoned to death for the crime of committing adultery. And this actually kind of sounds pretty familiar, right? I mean, imagine a young woman today, unwed, a teenager, who finds herself unexpectedly pregnant. Is she met with delight, joy, and unwavering support in her family and community? Probably not. While we have stopped stoning young women's death, I can't help but bring up the fact that in the United States, homicide is actually the leading cause of death for pregnant women. Women in the U.S. are more likely to be murdered during pregnancy or soon after childbirth than to die from the three leading obstetric causes of maternal death, which are high blood pressure, hemorrhage, or sepsis. And also, at the time of this recording, it is currently illegal to obtain an abortion in 21 states. And a 2021 study estimates that abortion bans result in a 21% increase in pregnancy related deaths, and that figure rises to 33% for non Hispanic Black people. So, yeah, an unexpected teenage pregnancy still carries the risk of death for young mothers, even today. But Mary remained steadfast in her faith and her acceptance of God's plan, which really starts to demonstrate her strength of character as a rebel mother before she even gave birth. She knew she'd be criticized and shamed. She knew she was putting her own life in danger in order to stand up for what she believed to be true. So as the time for the birth of Jesus drew near, Mary and Joseph found themselves in Bethlehem where they had to take shelter in a stable. So imagine Mary's feelings of vulnerability and discomfort as she gives birth to the Son of God in a stable, surrounded by livestock. (laughs) Now, there is no actual description of her labor and delivery, just the statement that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So this complete disconnection of Mary from her bodily experience of having sex in order to conceive a child and then glossing over the pain and transformation of labor and birth does uphold a common religious belief that the body is lesser than the spirit, right? The Catholic Church has a long history of denying normal bodily experiences, especially related to sexuality, deeming them sinful. And of course, the very concept of original sin in Christian theology, which is the belief that all humans uh, inherit a sinful nature as a result of Eve's actions, right, in the Garden of Eden, resulted in God's punishment of pain in childbirth. So this concept of original sin has been used to justify certain gender norms and roles with women sometimes being seen as more susceptible to sin and in greater need of moral guidance. Now to be fair, I'm not speaking on behalf of all religious theology here. Interpretations of original sin and its impact on women and motherhood vary widely within theology. Um, you know, Modern interpretations of original sin often emphasize that both men and women have an equal moral responsibility, and they seek to promote more inclusive and more equitable views of women and motherhood within the Christian and Catholic faith. So different denominations and scholars have diverse views on this matters, so I'm not trying to speak for an entire faith here. Regardless, there is still an association of sin with women, the physical body, and sexuality. So I think it's helpful to remember Mary as a person, a physical person with breasts and a uterus, and while she may have conceived a child without having sex, that baby came out of her body the same way countless billions of babies have been born throughout the history of humanity. Because I believe it's important to connect with Mary on a human level, and that will only elevate the experiences of mothers worldwide. So Mary has just given birth in a stable, with only her husband and some farm animals present. She's tired, sweaty, bloody, sore, you know, holding her newborn son, who she has been told is the son of God, in her arms, when all of a sudden some shepherds show up, strangers who've been told by an angel of the birth of Jesus, and they arrive to see the baby. Shortly afterward, the magi, often referred to as the three wise men, are led to Bethlehem by a star and bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to honor the newborn Jesus. I actually feel like every mother can relate to this moment right like who hasn't had a relative or a well-meaning friend drop by to see the new baby and they bring in presents and they ooh and ah over how magnificent he is and maybe they make up claims about how strong or smart he looks and how he'll change the world when he grows up and all the while you're sitting there with like bags under your eyes and you haven't had a shower so you you probably smell like a farm animal and you're hungry and you just want a moment alone in a soft comfy bed to hold your baby and rest and you don't need to be mansplained about how your baby is brilliant and beautiful and will certainly fulfill a profound purpose in his life really right now you just like a shower and maybe a hot cup of tea but looking ahead at the rest of mary's motherhood experience we know how it ends we know it's going to be awful Because let's face it, Mary's story is not a happy one. She is known as Our Lady of Sorrows because of the many painfully sad moments she experiences in her life as a mother. Like, it's impossible not to feel excruciatingly sympathetic as she experiences her seven sorrows. So the first sorrow, the prophecy of Simeon, is, you know, Mary's early awareness of her son's extraordinary destiny while acknowledging the immense pain that she's going to bear. The second sorrow... The flight into Egypt must have been terrifying. She was fleeing from the king Herod with her baby, who he wants to kill her baby, right? And so she's now banished to Egypt and she's able to come back a few years later. That must have been so scary and so disruptive. The third sorrow, the search for the child in Jerusalem, describes that maternal anxiety that Mary experienced when she loses sight of her son, only to find him again in the temple conversing with the teachers. I mean, I remember the terror I felt when I momentarily lost track of my kid in a target. Obviously, not the same depth here, but it's a fear I think every mother experiences. So in the fourth sorrow, Mary meets Jesus on his way to the cross. She has to watch his agonizing journey to Calvary, knowing he is on his way to his own execution. The fifth sorrow, standing at the foot of the cross, is actually really awful to think about. Um, it's this moment, it's this heart-wrenching moment when Mary watches the crucifixion of her son, and he calls out to her. And even knowing this was God's plan, and we're told she has unwavering faith in her God and in her son, I mean, it's indescribably horrible to think about. In the sixth sorrow, the crucifixion and descent for the cross, Mary is able to hold the body of her son as he's taken down. And this moment is the subject of many works of art. It's called the Pieta most famously seen in the marble sculpture by Michelangelo. And I was looking at some of the images of these art pieces while I researched this podcast, and I was just struck by how calm and serene she is portrayed, right? I feel like if my son had just been brutally murdered in front of me, I feel like I would be screaming with rage and fury and endless grief. So Mary's final sorrow is the assisting at the burial of Christ which is Mary's involvement in the preparation and burial of her son. Ugh, yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like this is actually a really sad episode. Um, but I think this is why Mary holds such a place of reverence for the people who worship her. Right? She went through unimaginable pain and grief, and she lived. So now the feminist in me wishes she was remembered through history as then tearing apart the lives of the people who did this to her son, but I get why the authors of the Bible wanted to portray her as a woman who had unwavering faith in God and his plan. But Mary's strength and her life have have inspired people for thousands of years. So now I want to look at some of the lesser-known stories of Mary and how these stories intersect with modern social justice issues like interfaith cooperation, immigration reform, classism. Plus, we're going to look at some... Ways in which Mary's story resonates with anti-racist and feminist ideologies. A quick break in our programming to let you know that Rebel Mothers is brought to you by Mother Bloom Coaching, now accepting new clients for 2024. Imagine yourself in three months, happier and more patient with your kids, confidently setting boundaries with family, and actively contributing to a more equitable future for all mothers and children. It's life coaching tailored for Rebel Moms, and Mother Bloom covers it all work-life balance, partner support, generational healing, and more. Our live one-on-one coaching calls become a weekly self-care treat just for you. Plus, enjoy an exclusive friends and family discount when you sign up by the end of the year. Ready to elevate your mom game in 2024? Visit SusieFishleader.com and click on Motherhood Coaching to join the motherhood revolution. So how can we apply the popularity and resonance of Mary's story as rebel mothers? broader social justice issues we already discussed her importance in both christianity and islam which serves it can serve as a you know a a bridge between these two religions understanding her significance in both faiths can promote this interfaith understanding a cooperation and peaceful coexistence which aligns with broader social justice efforts to you know promote religious freedom and harmony throughout the world additionally the story of her flight into Egypt, where Mary and Joseph had to flee with their baby, you know, to escape King Herod's persecution, that story intersects with contemporary discussions on immigration and refugees. Right? We can look at Mary's experience as a refugee and use that to underscore the importance of empathy and support for displaced individuals and families. Really emphasize the need for compassionate immigration policies and refugee rights by by tying it into The fact that Mary herself, Jesus himself as a baby, was a refugee. And Mary's own socioeconomic background and the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus kind of really position her as, you know, someone in sympathy or a part of the marginalized and oppressed in society. She was a young, unwed mother from a modest background who gave birth in a stable. So it feels like we can take that experience and we can create solidarity with the struggles of single mothers you know, unhoused families and people who need access to better health care. I also really wanted to see how elements of Mary's story and symbolism can be used in an anti-racist context. So I applied a critical race interpretation of Mary in works of art. So particularly in her depiction as a white European woman, even though it's very clearly documented that she's from the Middle East. And there's this beautiful, beautiful, theme out there of the black madonna so you know artists and scholars have known about the the history of the black madonna for ages and if you ever read the book the secret life of bees by sue monk Kidd, a statue of the black madonna has a prominent role in that book so Kidd wrote in an afterword to her novel quote approximately 400 to 500 of these ancient madonna's still exist mostly in europe they are among the oldest madonna images in the world and their blackness is purportedly not related to race or ethnic origins but has to do with obscure symbolic meanings and connections to earlier goddesses i traveled to europe to see some of the black madonnas and found them to be images of startling strength and authority their stories reveal a rebellious even defiant sides Black Madonnas in Poland and Central America have been the rallying images for oppressed peoples struggling against persecution, end quote. So the figure in the image of the Black Madonna symbolizes not only a more inclusive representation of the divine, but also serves as a powerful figure of resistance for oppressed communities. And these statues are actually a fascinating topic to study for multiple areas of research, right? The history of how race was constructed in Europe, The History of Divine Feminine Spiritual Worship, uh, The History of Marian Theology, and more. I read a journal article titled, From Majesty to Mystery, Change in the Meanings of Black Madonnas from 16th to 19th Centuries uh, by Monique Scheer. And she wrote, quote, these publications can draw not only on a long tradition of viewing Mary as the feminine face of God or even the secret goddess of Christianity, but also on academic research scholars working from the perspective of comparative religion have maintained that the devotion to black madonnas is the continuation of cults of pre-christian earth and mother goddesses who are also sometimes portrayed with black skin End quote she goes on to ask if black madonnas were read as depictions of mary was she then understood to be depicted as an african woman now sheer points out that mary isn't often portrayed with black skin prior to the mid-15th century And she does believe that the black skin used in the Marian images had multiple meanings layered with these ancient goddesses, these other divine feminine images. So there's like this blending of ancient divine goddesses with the worship of Mary. And in fact, this blending of Mary with divine feminine African and indigenous goddesses has been seen and studied in other areas of the world as well. There's a wonderful chapter in a book called Hope Abundant, Third World and Indigenous Women's Theology. The chapter's called Jesus and Mary Dance with the Orishas by Clara Luz Ajo Lazaro in Cuba, where she describes a process of transculturation that happened when the slave trade brought African people to the Americas, including Cuba, and they carried their religious beliefs and practices with them. So a little background info here, the Yoruba religion, which originated in West Africa, particularly from the region that is now Nigeria, they have worshipped Yamaya as a goddess, or Orisha, for centuries. And she is a goddess associated with water, the sea, fertility, and motherhood. So in Cuba, Yamaya's worship became intertwined with the religion known as Santeria, which developed as a result of the blending of Yoruba spirituality with Catholicism. So this was a way for enslaved Africans to maintain their spiritual traditions while appearing to convert to Christianity, which was of course enforced by their captors. So Yamaya, the goddess, found her counterpart in the Catholic faith in the form of the Virgin Mary, particularly Our Lady of Regla. So Yamaya and the Virgin Mary, they share some attributes and some symbolism. Both are seen as maternal figures who provide protection, guidance, and support. So Our Lady of Regla is a Marian or a Mary apparition of the Catholic church Uh, worshipped in these hispanic countries like cuba the dominican republic and also spain and they're often she's often depicted with dark skin she's one of these black madonnas from earlier so our lady of regla for example is linked to yamaya due to her connection to the sea the sailors and protection but as lazaro points out in her chapter quote the fusion of yamaya with the virgin of regla shows a face of mary quite different from the traditional image of the humble and chaste virgin since yamaya though she is a good mother is also a single mother the stories tell of her love affairs with various orishas and also of her strong character expressed in her tenacity and valor yamaya therefore is not a model of maternity that can be used for controlling the sexuality and bodies of women the fusion of these two images has been enriched with the common people's spirituality, which brings them close to the real lives of women. Thus these images become creative and transformative forces that destroy the traditional stereotypes of the Virgin Mary and project rather the image of a mother who affirms her body and sexuality in a free and responsible manner." End quote. So I just want you to pause for a second and imagine your life up to this moment How different it would be if one of the few divine feminine images that we have is not of a virgin mother who is quiet and humble and chaste, but in fact is a single mother who affirms her body, affirms her sexuality in a free and responsible manner. And how different would we feel about ourselves as women, as mothers, if that were an image that we were used to seeing everywhere? in churches. It just, it feels good, right, to think about how Mary could be portrayed in these other ways, linked with these other goddesses with different attributes. I don't know, it just feels very rich and generous and abundant to me. Now, the Cuban people aren't the only people to see Mary in a different light from the traditionally pious and quiet, meek version that we're normally presented with. If we look at Mary through a feminist lens, we find an opportunity to see her as a figure of empowerment and agency. I recently attended the dissertation defense of a peer who completed her doctorate of philosophy in transformative studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, Christine Dennis. And the title of her dissertation was An Autohistoria Terroria and Remythologizing of the Virgin Mary through pregnancy, birthing, and postpartum depression. Uh, Christine, or I should actually say Dr. Christine Dennis, you know, posited a research problem that said that Western interpretations and myths of the Virgin Mary neglect the realities of her physical body. She believes that this is a problem because not talking about Mary's body contributes to the oppression of women's bodies within the Catholic imagination in the West, as it, quote, disconnects her from the embodied realities of sex, pregnancy, and labor. Furthermore, the Roman Catholic interpretation and image of Mary as a Virgin mother separates her from women who experience the lived challenges of postpartum depression. Mary is the primary model of motherhood for Catholic women, yet the mainstream myth and story does not align with the lived realities of pregnant and birthing bodies and the reality of motherhood, End quote. So Dr. Dennis goes on to explain why this is important, uh, citing that one in seven American women are affected by postpartum depression and 85% of women go untreated. And also that 45% of all pregnancies in the US are unintended, which makes Mary's experience of unexpected pregnancy quite notable and quite relatable. But we continue to remain focused on the part of her story about being a miraculous conception as a virgin, instead of the very relatable part of her story as a woman who found herself with an unintended pregnancy. So... Christine's dissertation was fascinating, her presentation was very compelling, and I am gonna link in the show notes how you can find her and follow her work. Now this experience seeing Mary through a somewhat feminist lens isn't new. During the second wave feminist movement of you know the 60s and 70s, many scholars began looking for examples of goddess worship or a divine feminine that broke free from the oppression of patriarchal religion. And the Virgin Mary was an easy place to start as one of the few existing you know, women who already had A version of contemporary worship so feminist interpretations of mary offer a fresh perspective on her significance beyond the traditional religious narratives we're used to hearing so in these interpretations mary is seen as a symbol of female empowerment and a source of inspiration for modern feminism and some feminist scholars and theologians emphasize mary's consent to her role as the mother of jesus as not being humble submission but actually they reimagine it as a radical active agency, right? Because it challenged the oppressive norms of the time. And you can see this. I mean, despite the pressures of society and the potentially deadly consequences she faced, her willingness to be a part of God's plan really shows a lot of courage, a lot of commitment to challenging the status quo. And I think she really serves as a symbol of female strength in the face of adversity. We talked earlier about the seven sorrows of Mary, and she never broke. She never crumbled. She never gave up. She kept going through unimaginable pain and sorrow. Furthermore, and this this is nuanced, so stay with me, okay? Mary's embodiment of divine motherhood can be reimagined as a source of empowerment for women, emphasizing her nurturing and protective qualities as a mother. So the first line of my podcast is that motherhood has been used to oppress and exploit women for centuries. So it is a delicate balance to find when I talk about motherhood actually as a source of empowerment, because I don't want to reinforce narratives that say that, especially religious narratives, say that women are designed by God to be biologically more nurturing, and so they should be the primary caregivers of the children, because that line of reasoning has made motherhood a trap into many for many women by limiting their opportunities outside of a caregiving role. It also limits the participation of men and fathers in raising children. But I very much want to keep having the conversation that suggests a model of motherhood that actually encourages women to embrace their experience as a mother as a source of strength rather than limitation. I think there are many, many women out there who really do enjoy being mothers, myself included, and who find agency and purpose, and strength, and delight, and joy in motherhood. The role of mother is not the only role that I fulfill. It's not my highest calling. It's not my only source of purpose. But yes, being able to be with my children while they're young has been lovely. And yes, it has also severely limited my professional opportunities. It's a yes and. There's not a single right answer that applies to everyone. I want to keep having these dialogues about motherhood and mothering. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. But for this episode, I want to celebrate that for many mothers, there is a feminist version of Mary that celebrates and affirms her relevance as a symbol of female empowerment and resilience in the modern world because of her role as a mother. Whew. Okay, let's start to wrap this up. To recap, in this episode, we discussed the multi-layered figure of Mary as the mother of Jesus, looking at her complex role as both a symbol and a historical mother. We explored Mary's importance in both Christianity and Islam, and then took a closer look at her experience as a mother, emphasizing her incredible strength of character as an unwed expecting mother who must have faced public shaming and threats. And then imagined the story of Jesus' birth and his life story and tragic ending, through Mary's eyes. This episode also explored how Mary's story creates solidarity with modern social justice issues like racism, classism, immigration, and gender issues, and that she really celebrates women's strength and the diverse experiences of motherhood. Plus, we talked about modern feminist interpretations of Mary, viewing her as a symbol of female empowerment, consent, and resilience, while addressing the nuances surrounding the celebration of motherhood as a source of strength and not limitation. So ultimately, regardless of your religious beliefs, I invite you to consider Mary, not just as a symbol, but as a rebel mother, and think about the profound impact of her story on women's lives throughout history and her continued relevance in the modern world. Stay tuned for more empowering stories and insightful discussions in future episodes of Rebel Mothers. Remember to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast to spread the message far and wide. Learn more at SusieFishleader.com And thank you for being part of the motherhood revolution.